If you've been around with us, you'll know we're working our way over the course of this year through uh, John's account of the life of Jesus. Um, And it may be that you are beginning to get a feel for the way in which John writes, um, which has a distinctive style. Um, His his approach um, to this gospel, very different to the other three, um, which are called sometimes called the synoptic gospels, same kind of view. Um, they all overlap quite a bit. John is the, is the fourth gospel, rather different. Um, and one of the things that I think is different about his writing style is the way that he, he loops round, uh, revisits things, even within the course of a single chapter. Um, very different, say, to um, Paul, the apostle's writing style, uh, where he's got relentless logic, uh, pushing an argument through uh, and pressing it home for us. Well, John also presses arguments home, but, but not with sort of relentless linear logic, uh, but often with looping, intensifying narrative that gradually pushes a truth about Jesus deeper and deeper and deeper. Why? Well, I think because we can be very slow. Um, responding to Jesus is not a matter simply of logic. It's not just an idea, um, and we assess the idea and, uh, and, and, and work it out. Now, a response to Christ is a response of the will. Uh, it involves a decision of the heart. And we need this relentless intensification of Jesus' teaching about himself in order that we might hear clearly who he is, and begin to decide how we are and have responded to him. Jesus raises the temperature. He stirs up our passions. He presses people's buttons. Uh, and that's pretty clear in this 10th chapter of John's Gospel. Because as we'll see, for the third time, uh, the, uh, the rulers of the day are stirred to murderous intent. Shocking, perhaps, to find that like a, uh, like a mob uh, intent on violence. They are ready to pick up stones which they will hurl at him until he is battered to death. And perhaps we find that rather offensive. Perhaps we find that rather shocking. Uh, that these people could be so violent. Uh, Perhaps it is. Uh, I wonder, though, if the people of Jesus' day might gaze at our culture and what they might find shocking is our apathy, our indifference, how little what Christ has to say stirs us. How casually we hear the extraordinary things that he says. How little we allow them to affect our lives. Perhaps that would be a shock to them. I confess I wonder which of the two, the violent passion of the rulers of Jesus' day or the tragic apathy of our culture today, I wonder sometimes which is worse.
enough. Let's hear the passage uh, that we're going to, uh, to study. Um, I'm actually just speaking on the final section um, of John, uh, verses 31 through to 42. Um, but we're going to... I've asked Fiona if she'd read the whole of the chapter because I'd love you to see how some of the same ideas uh, return again and again um, as John uh, speaks. Let me, uh, let me pray for us before Fiona comes to read. Uh, Father God, as we uh, read this chapter, as we hear words uh, recorded uh, that Jesus uh, spoke, uh, we pray that, that the force of them, that the meaning of them, significance of them would be uh, clear to us. Uh, please would your spirit uh, take what we read uh, and cause it to be uh, clear to us, uh, both at the level of our minds and the level of our hearts and in the decisions of our will. Uh, have mercy upon us, please, uh, to uh, that end. In Christ's name, amen. We're looking at page 1076 in your Red Bibles. John chapter 10. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. 
I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, He is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered round him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside... What about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said, I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I, unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Oops. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, Though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Thank you very much, Fiona, for, for reading that so well for us. Um, I've just got three headings, and I just wanted to, to walk us briefly through um, some of the things that I think we see um, in this interaction between Jesus uh, and the rulers of his day. Here they are. Uh, the works of Jesus uh, are what promise abundant life. Uh, the identity of Jesus is what makes these works possible. And the challenge of Jesus is what divides our world in two. Uh, so take the first of those. Uh, the works of Jesus. Uh, these are what promise abundant life. It is striking, isn't it, the way that um, Jesus keeps pulling attention back to, to the, the works that he does, the, the miracles that he performs. Uh, he keeps dragging um, uh, the people back to see that again and again. Uh, it is, after all, his words that have upset the rulers, 
Uh, you see it there in verse 30, where Jesus has said, I and the Father are one. That's the outrage uh, to describe himself to be so, so united with God the Father that he and the Father can be one. And they find it so outraging that they take up stones to throw at him. And Jesus? There are no stones to throw. No, just words with which to defend himself. And I don't know, perhaps uh, even as he begins to speak in verse 31, uh, could it be that some of the first stones have already been thrown? And that he speaks out in an effort to gain a few more moments, uh, to speak a few more words, to get a little bit more of a hearing. Is it possible that even as he begins to speak in verse 31, uh, there is blood trickling down his forehead because the first stone has already hit? Jesus says, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? You see what he's doing? He's kind of unsettling their confidence, isn't he? Does it make sense for you to stone me, a man who has opened the eyes of the blind, a man who's caused the deaf to hear and the lame to walk? You stone me for doing these things, these works of the Father, notice. It's a consistent theme of John's Gospel uh, to point to these works, the, the, the things that Jesus has done. Uh, actually, it seems as if John's gospel may well be built around seven signs. Uh, John mentions the first and the second. Uh, he doesn't identify the other seven, but uh, most people who write about John's gospel think that these probably are uh, the seven that were in John's mind when he composed. Uh, and you can't help being struck that these are good things, these are blessings, but they communicate an age of blessing. Paralytics healed, 5,000 fed, blind caused to see. They point, in other words, to, to life, to, to the abundant life that the kingdom causes to break in as Jesus brings the blessing of life life to the full, as he describes it back in verse 10. And it makes it hard to see how could the opponents of Jesus really be justified in opposing a man who does such things. But of course they're not after him because he's done these things. They're after him because of what he has said. Which they make clear in verse 32. We're not stoning you, they say for any good work, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. It's striking language, actually, that they're using at this point, because the original, sort of literal um, uh, phraseology would be that you, a mere man, should make yourself God. And you just pause for a moment on that phrase, and you can't help but see the irony, can you? I mean, that they are so completely wrong. It is not that Jesus 
is making himself to be God. No, no, no. It's that Jesus, in Jesus, God has made himself, as it were, man. That's the stunning, extraordinary truth about who Jesus is. But if they are so wrong about Jesus' identity, they're they're right in another sense. It is the claims that matter. It is this extraordinary claim uh, to be Jesus. But what they fail to see is that the, the words and the actions of Jesus go hand in hand. They are woven together. Why is it that he can act as he does? What enables him to do what he does? To overcome the laws of nature and walk on water? What enables him to create out of nothing and feed 5,000? What gives him control over life and death so that he can restore a man even from the grave? Jesus can do these things because of who he is. Because it is the identity of Jesus that makes these things possible. And that brings us, um, uh, secondly, to um, this very strange interchange um, around the content of Psalm 82. Um, Some of the detail may not be clear, um, and uh, a fair amount of ink is spilt Uh, over what exactly Jesus is on about here. But I think that the basic thread, um, I think we can be clear about. Um, They intend to stone him because he has claimed to be God. And Jesus is almost trying to stop them in their tracks. It's almost as if he's trying to, as I said, to, to buy some time so that they will listen to him a little bit longer. He'll have more chance to, to, to explain what they need to hear. Um, And he does that by pointing out to them that if they're so very upset that he should be claiming to be God, well, had they noticed that one of their very own psalms, Psalm 82, actually calls people gods? And and I guess you can imagine them, sort of, you know, there they are with the rock ready to throw, and they go, oh, oh, that's funny. I hadn't thought about that before. Uh, And you can imagine it just sort of slightly causes them pause for thought. Um, Psalm 82 um, is about the delivery of the commands of God to the people of God. Uh, and the point seems that Jesus seems to be making uh, is that simply being on the receiving end of the eternal word of God gives a person such privilege, such honor, such dignity that the psalmist thinks it merits calling these people gods. Uh, Which is why Jesus continues as he does in verse 35. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? In other words, look, if, if you can get called gods by the psalmist as a sort of turn of phrase, just by receiving the eternal word, what label do you think would be appropriate for the one that the Father has set apart from all eternity to be the word of God and to enter into the world? 
Now, you, you can see the way that the argument works, perhaps just about. But you can probably also see that Jesus may not be entirely helping himself at this point. Can you see that this is rather less like pouring oil on troubled water than it is petrol on a bonfire? Because he's kind of just making things worse, isn't he? And you're right. That is the direction that he's traveling in. He's not retreating from his claim at all. He's just about to repeat it. Why then? He says in verse 37. Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. See, we're back at verse 30 again. I and the Father are one. Since I do the works of the Father, since I'm doing these miracles, then do you see that they land you in the same place? The miracles and the words weave together to leave you the conviction that I could only be doing this if the Father was in me and I am in the Father. You're left with no room to maneuver. And nor are we. You can't admire Jesus for being a miracle worker. You can't give him faint praise as a good man. You can't delight in him for being such a clever teacher and stop there. He forces you to go further. He forces you to grapple with his claim to be God on earth. And I suppose in that sense, their response is kind of correct. In as much as that if you don't believe his claim, then he is to be swept to one side. So come to our final heading, the challenge of Jesus. For this is what divides our world in two. The rulers respond uh, afresh with their murderous intent. They try, verse 39, to seize him, but he escapes from their grasp. Because it's not yet his time to go to the cross. And so we're told Jesus heads back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. And there he stayed, and many people came to him. And the people who came to him, they said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. John, in a sense, is setting us up with a choice. Believe in him or do him to death. Find his claims outrageous or bow down and worship him. 
That's the direction that John is driving in his gospel. The mounting evidence of the signs. The cumulative effect of all that Jesus says and does. But do remember that this isn't a matter of logic. It is a decision of the will. Just finished uh, a weekend uh, where I've been speaking on the theme of fear. Uh, and uh, in the midst of the weekend, they, they were asking me uh, how it was I had become a Christian believer. Um, and I was recalling that, and I think I've probably said this to some of you before, I was recalling that, that the moment that I became a Christian, the predominant emotion for me was fear. Fear of what a decision for Christ would lead to. Fear of what he would want from me. Fear of what I might be giving up. Fear of all that was unknown. But here's the thing, there is a much greater fear to be faced if we put, us on the, put ourselves on the wrong side of this Jesus who the Father has set apart as his very own and sent into the world. It is a stark choice for you if you're not yet a Christian believer. Do you see that to hear what Jesus claims for himself ought to stir us. It ought to provoke us. It ought to leave us with a sense that we can't just shrug our shoulders and walk on by. If he is who he claims to be, he demands a response. Then see how the passage ends. All that John the Baptist said about this man was true. Don't you think the most famous thing that John the Baptist said about Jesus? I wonder if it might be his comment that Jesus must become greater and he, John the Baptist, must become less. Well, as we finish having challenged those of us who would not yet call ourselves Christian believers uh, with the claims that Jesus puts in front of us, uh, let me also challenge those of us who do call ourselves Christian believers. How are we responding to the absolute radical claims of Jesus upon our lives? How are we fitting in with that ambition that John the Baptist had, that he might become greater, Jesus might become greater, and that he, John the Baptist, might become less. Does that capture the way that your Christian discipleship is working out? There's a sense in which every time we sideline Jesus, every time we, we just shuffle him, off to the side of our lives so that we can get on with the things that we're interested in, we're kind of putting him to death. We're kind of stoning him out of our lives so that we can get on with the things that we're interested in, the things that matter to us as he's shuffled off. He would not have us do that. He would challenge us 
to hear his claims of who he is, of how he matters, and of how he claims our absolute and unreserved allegiance. So for those of us who are believers, perhaps we should make our prayer that he, Jesus, would become greater and we would become less. I suggest uh, Ben's going to come back up. Um, Why don't we be quiet for a moment uh, and uh, think on uh, some of the words that Jesus speaks to us uh, from this part of John's Gospel for a few minutes, and then Matt will pick up and lead us into final couple of songs.